It's good to be together. As I mentioned, my name's Tanner. I came here in 2006. And in 2006, I came from a real small town to MSU as a freshman. And uh, I was pretty out of my element. Uh, There's more people in my first class than there was in my hometown. And I just felt like, what am I doing here? Well, I didn't know, but God did. God had a plan, and in that plan, he rescued me from my sin. He rescued me from myself. He rescued me from his wrath and brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I started attending this church uh, sometime later, shortly after that, actually. And what I soon discovered was the mission statement here. It's this, to glorify God by being and making disciples. What does that even mean? To glorify God by being and making disciples. Well, to think about what it means to be a disciple, we've got to first ask, what does it mean to become a disciple? Now, if you were here last week, we talked about Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And that's what we're going to do this semester. Dive into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If we want to be disciples of him, we've got to talk about what does it mean to become a disciple of him? What's the word disciple mean? It means learner. But it's not quite enough. It's, it's much too simple to just say the word disciple means learner. In fact, John the Baptist had disciples. You know that. Jesus' forerunner. Uh, the Pharisees had disciples. Even Moses had disciples, learners. We're not talking about merely spectators tonight as disciples. We're talking about intimate, sacrificial, God-fearing disciples of Jesus Christ. And I know no text better tonight to go to than one with you in Luke chapter 14. I wonder if you grab a Bible and go there. If you don't have a Bible, like we said last week, grab the app in your lap and flip to Luke chapter 14. I want you reading the text as we go along. Luke chapter 14. Follow along with me in Luke chapter 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke third book of the New Testament, chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. 25 to 35, it says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, speaking to Jesus, and he turned and said to him, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man begins to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to counter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear let him hear a word of prayer together. Lord, we're gathered here. We've sung. We've had announcements. We've 
gotten to know one another and gotten to say hi to old friends. Now we turn to worship through your word, your authoritative, inerrant, sufficient word, sweeter than honey, even the dripping of the honeycombs. More to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Lord, help us to take it in, your authoritative word. Where else can we go but to you and to your word? God, we would reveal, uh, we would pray, I should say, as the song says, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. That's our prayer tonight, our, our begging, our asking. Nothing happens here tonight without you, Lord, so move in our midst through your spirit, through your word. Tonight, we would ask in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 14, 25 to 35 is the paramount text, I believe, as it pertains to discipleship. Look at verse 25. It says, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned to them and said, stop there, great crowds. (laughs) What's going on here? Oftentimes, if you're like me, you think of Jesus going along in his earthly ministry, uh, plugging along, and there's people. There's maybe 12 disciples following him. Uh, occasionally, there's big crowds, maybe 20, 50,000 when he's feeding people with bread. But most of the time, it's just him and his disciples. Now, towards the later half of his ministry, perhaps that was true. But you got to imagine and realize in Scripture, what we see in contrast to that is a great amount of the time, Jesus, anyone knows where Jesus is, they're around him. They're swarming him. He's getting out in the water to get away from him just so he can preach to him. This occasion is no different. He's going from Galilee in the north. He's going into Jerusalem. And all these small splotches of crowds and people who are following him have come together in one massive conglomeration. And they're following him around. And so he says to them, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's try to understand what these disciples would have been expecting. They're hoping to go with Jesus to Jerusalem, and they're wanting this Messiah to establish an earthly kingdom, to set up and to reign. And they're hoping to be the benevolent of that. They're hoping to get the goods coming from his earthly kingdom. They're following him for many number of reasons, some pure motivation, but mostly not. We don't know exactly how many, but probably 20, 30, 40,000 people following Jesus around just in mobs, pressing in against him. And he says this peculiar thing to him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You want to be Jesus' disciple? Now he says it means more than merely being a learner. So much more. Jesus wanted true followers. No bait and switch tactics here. With Jesus, you always got what you got. This is one of the things, by the way, that broke my heart as we were at Catapalooza this year. So much bait and switch. Uh, My wife... I see you're out there. My beautiful wife was a marketing major at MSU, and I'm no stranger myself to the manipulation of advertising and strategies in that arena. And what we see again is this bait and switch tactic. Here's what we show you. Here's what you get. Not so with the Lord of the universe. You get what you get with Jesus. He is who he is. But how are we to understand this statement? How are we to understand hating our own families? Yes, even our own life. Jesus' illustration here has helped 
by understanding the Hebrew culture and times and language. When Jesus says hate, he's speaking of a priority shift here. Uh, This battle, by the way, I think, I see is more pronounced in college-age students. It's more pronounced in you. I don't have much experience, but if I go back to undergrad in ministry, maybe eight years now, I've been working with 18 to 23, and what I see again and again is this tearing in trying to decide, am I going to follow as my highest priority, my biological allegiance, or am I going to follow the king of the universe? And there's this warring back and forth, and there's often this misunderstanding like it's one or the other. Make no mistake, Jesus is establishing a priority here, but this isn't removed from the rest of the scriptures where we see uh, passages like this, honor your father and mother. So how do we reconcile hating your mother and father and honoring your mother and father? It's this, it's a priority thing. It's as if Jesus is saying, your love for me, your devotion to me, your priority to me is so extreme that everything else in comparison is hatred. Matthew Henry, old-time commentator, was helpful in saying this, not that the persons must be in any degree hated, but our comfort and satisfaction in them must be lost and swallowed up in our love for Christ. Now, clearly, clearly this is not a license to dishonor, disrespect, or disregard our parents, our wives, our children, our brothers and sisters. Ephesians 5 tells us no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. Is this this saying severe? Yes. But is he saying this in a way that you would despise your own family? No. We have many Old Testament examples of this that we could go to. Jesus, uh, or not Jesus, he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, Consequently, I believe when a follower of Christ gets this right, when you and I understand this for the first time, and it was in college that I believe I understood this for the first time, we can truly, fully, and perhaps for the first time, really honor our family as we ought. When the priority is right, when Christ is so far above in devotion and love and admiration and respect and worship that everything else falls to a distant second, then we're beginning to understand this. It's almost as if, it's almost as if he's saying, you die to your own desires and are reborn into Christ. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, Again, how are we to understand this? Well, from what we can tell, from what I could discover, crosses at the time, Roman crosses would have weighed about 300 pounds. So is Jesus saying, you need to be able to lift 300 pounds? (laughs) Surely he's not. What is he saying? Listen to me when I say the word cross And this period in history could only be understood in one way. Death, humiliation, and suffering. When people heard cross, that's exactly what they heard. Romans had been crucifying for decades, if not centuries. And the very word cross would have bred a fear in people's life. It involved following Christ, certainly involuntary death, but not merely involuntary death, a death to yourself, a death to your own desires. Crucifixion also carried a weight in humiliation. I was reading Cicero, a Roman politician and lawyer, famous speaker who died just at the end of the first century BC, just before Jesus lived. And he described crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. 
and suggests that the very mention of the cross should be far removed from not only a Roman citizen's body, but his mind, eyes, and ears. Oh, we just can't do this any justice today. We wear crosses around our neck. In those times, if someone would have said the word cross, shivers would have crawled up their back. To bear your own cross? Really, Jesus? This is a hard saying. This is a dying to self. You might remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous Lutheran pastor, pastored during the regime of Hitler. You remember what he said? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is what Jesus is saying. When Christ calls a man, when I call you, I'm calling you to death. Physical death, perhaps. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew that well. He was executed under Hitler's regime. But I venture to say, I don't know if all, but a great portion of us, I hope, if gunmen were to come in here tonight, would bow before those gunmen and say, take my life, I will not denounce Christ. I wouldn't say that that would be easy, but I would say that this passage goes much deeper. We're helped by an earlier chapter in Luke. Look at Luke chapter 9. Just back a couple chapters, Luke chapter 9. Verse 23 to 27. Luke chapter 9, 23 to 27. Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is one of the first verses I memorized in Bible college. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I discovered this, that after the phrase follow me, no phrase is repeated more often in the Gospels by Jesus than, than this. Whoever loses his life for my sake. Whoever loses his life for my sake. We can't say it any more plainly than that. Jesus commands, he calls a dying to your old life and a living to the new. When Christ calls a man or a woman to new life, it's not a marriage of two lives. It's not like we're taking our own life and uniting it with Christ. No, it's not like we're taking our old life of sin and destruction and death and putting a cherry on top of Christ. What we see is not a marriage of two lives, but a widowing of one, a death to the old life and a birthing to a new life in Christ. Perhaps Paul Washer says it best when he says, the true convert does not receive the gospel as an addition to his previous life, but in exchange for it. No, not in addition to, but in exchange for. It would be difficult. I struggle with words even now. I, perhaps it's my limited vocabulary. Perhaps it's my limitations as the teacher of the Word of God. I don't think I can exaggerate. I don't think I can give enough weight to what Jesus is saying here. It frustrates me, even as I stand before you, to try and take what Jesus has said and say it any more clear or say it any more fuller or say it with any more weight than he says. He says what he says. With Jesus, you get what you get. He is who he is. He says, die and follow me. He says, hate even your own self. 
and follow me. It's difficult, I think nearly impossible for me to exaggerate what Jesus is saying here. Only bear in mind this. When Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him, we do it in good company. Amen? We do it with the one who knows better than any of us what it means to take up his cross. When we take up our cross and truly follow him, we do not do it alone. No, we do it with the Spirit of God living inside of us. And in many cases, we do it with other believers, brothers and sisters, taking up their own cross and following them, following hard after him, setting our eyes on Christ like we talked about last week. Make no mistake, this is a difficult saying. There's few that can accept it. But when we do it, we do it in the best of company. Be it said clearly, be it understood clearly, that Jesus delighted not in fans, Not in quasi-Christians, but in followers, in true disciples. And I wonder, as I look out tonight, which are you? Are you a follower of Christ? Or are you merely a fan? Are you a quasi-Christian following a quasi-Christ, a figment of your imagination, or is it the Jesus of this text? Is it the historical Jesus, the New Testament Jesus, the Jesus who was and is and is to come? Are you a follower? Or are you merely an observer from a distance? Which are you? Back to Luke 12 in our text. Flip or clip Click back to Luke 12, verse 28. Lord, help us to understand this. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Uh, Jesus is a master illustrator, and if he hasn't made himself clear enough, he gives two illustrations here to drive home his point. Again, we're helped by Matthew Henry. He says this, It's true, none of us in ourselves are sufficient to finish this tower, but Christ has said, My grace is sufficient, and all that grace and the grace shall not be wanting or lacking in any of us if we seek for it and make use of it. What is he saying? I know that's old language. You think you can build a tower in yourself, in and of yourself? No, you can't. But if you seek after Christ, if you step back, and that's what I'm asking you to do tonight. I know this text has gravity. I've thought about it all week. I've prayed it into my life. I've tried to study it and practice and now teach it. If we step back objectively and think about counting the cost, do I really want to follow Christ? I look at the crowd here tonight and I ask you, do you really want to follow Christ? Count the cost. And if you do, as Henry has eloquently put, we're not sufficient in and of ourselves, but press in, press on to building this tower and you will find Christ's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. Amen? But the challenge here is to step back and to consider, to count. The first illustration deals with building. The second with war. Look at verse 31. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him when he comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. 
I believe, along with many others, that this text is not merely repeating the same lesson over. I think there's that implication. But instead of caution and careful observation merely, now we see urgency in the text. Impending war and doom. Make no mistake, friends, each of us outside of Christ is at war with God. And we are severely undermanned. God has offered a peace treaty through Christ. And we would do well, while we are a long way off, to recognize our deficiency through works righteousness, through any merits of our own, through merely attending cross life or grace or any other church or ministry or reading the Bible. No, we are undermanned and underpowered. And we do well to step back and look and to see the urgency, the imminency of the moment, and to take that peace treaty. Christ has and can put us at peace through his blood. Friends, accept that peace treaty. Christ's illustration here is obvious. And these illustrations are easy enough for us to understand, but I thought of one more. I hope it will be helpful for your conscience as it was for mine. Who begins college without first counting the cost? <laughs> Out-of-state tuition is uh, about 22000 a year. Maybe more, maybe less. Living expenses, a conservative estimate's another 10000 Over four years, that's $128,280. No one gets done in four years anymore. So, say four and a half or five years. <laughs> that takes us to upwards of $150,000, dollars $170,000. Which one of us here tonight, <laughs> many of us, myself included, started college without really counting the cost? We do many things today without counting the cost, don't we? Just kind of impulsively launch into it. It's the next thing. I know not all of us go to MSU. Some of you go to NBC. Some of you are in the workforce. Some of you go to Gallatin College. There's many different things here. But who among us started college without really counting the cost? This guy. <laughs> and probably many of you. Now that has financial implications. But listen and look at me tonight when I tell you that if you don't count the cost before turning to follow Christ, it has eternal implications. You will work to build a tower without counting the cost and not have the faith to see it through. I call you, I challenge you tonight, count the cost. Not merely of tuition. Not merely of building a tower. Not merely of the fact that God is at war with sinners. Psalm 5, He is angry. He hates all who do iniquity. He's angry with the wicked every day. But count the cost of following Christ and accept that peace treaty while you still have time. Verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's as if Jesus just piles verse on top of verse on top of verse. <laughs> Doesn't this do away with about 95% of what we see in gospel calls today? I was raised, and you were raised, in the generation of pray this prayer, walk this aisle, raise your hand, and we're still in it. Four spiritual laws, pray this prayer, five things God wants you to know about you. Does it alarm you that there's no such superstitious prayer to be found in the entire New Testament? 
How, how are we to square that with a text like this? should strike fear in our hearts that day in and day out, the gospel call is accept Jesus. Pray Jesus into your heart. He's knocking on the door of your heart. I don't see this here. No, Jesus says, count the cost and follow me. I don't know much, but I know a little bit. I know that many, when they come to college, don't lose their faith, but their faith is found out. It's a testing ground, and their faith for the first time is fully shown. I know that anecdotally from my life, and I know that from many of you sitting in here tonight. No, friends, praying a prayer won't do. Can that be a legitimate expression of repentance and faith and a desire to follow Christ? It can. But Jesus says here, look what he says. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. How are we to understand this? How are we to square this with much of what is said and done today? Oh, Jesus says, be willing to give it all away. This resides not so much in what we do outwardly, but what happens on the inside. Do we have a willingness, a readiness to give whatever it takes, to give up, yes, our own life, to give up school, to give up anything that it would take when the time comes to follow Christ? Is there a readiness in our soul to renounce all to follow Christ? The text is clear. This is a looking forward, not a looking back. I read to you, I read to you now words from someone who said it much better than I, David Platt. Jesus is no longer one to be accepted or invited in, but one who is infinitely worthy of our immediate and total surrender. Surely the gospel evokes unconditional surrender of all that we are and all that we have to all that He is. What are the implications of being a disciple? Total and absolute surrender. Look back at Luke 9. Luke 9, 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, this is Jesus, I, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. What's he saying? Let me have my inheritance. Let me wait until my dad passes away and I'll get my goods and then I'll follow you. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the dead. Let the world attend to the worldly things. You follow Christ. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first say farewell. Let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and first looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. These are hard sayings. I recognize that. It's not altogether different from what we see in John 6. Huge crowds, again, are following Jesus. You remember what he says to him? He who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood cannot be my disciple. <laughs> what do you do with that? Church growth tactics at its best, right? 40,000 people, however many people following Jesus around. 
And he has it. I mean, he has the crowds and he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Who says that? Jesus does. Because with Jesus, you get what you get. He is who he is. He says, here it is. Remember what the followers said? This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And after most of them leave, you remember what Jesus says to his 12 disciples? Not I'm glad you stuck around. Basically, what are you still doing here? (laughs) And you remember what Peter says? Where else can we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. That's the attitude. (laughs) No, not going home tonight and putting everything you have on eBay. No, not going home tonight and writing hate mail to anyone. A total unconditional surrender that says, Lord, where else can I go? I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing here. Where else can I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. It's who Jesus was. This is what he said. This is what we have to reconcile with. Jesus offered himself to all freely, but he never disguised the call to be a follower and what it would look like. And this is especially important, by the way, when things get rough. And they do get rough, don't they? As I look out here tonight, I recognize that each of us comes here tonight with our own weight, our own thing going on deep inside. And when things get rough, if you've been sold, if you've been marketed a quasi-Christianity that says everything is going to go well for you, how's that square when things go poorly? Pretty bad. And that's why so many of us are said to have abandoned our faith. No, not a faith. A quasi-faith that is really no faith at all. Too often, too often a Christianity is marketed and sold that does not work. It says your life will be a glossy blessing. And when it turns wreck, when it turns difficult, when we face persecution, when we find ourselves no longer relaxing in the shade, but in the glaring heat of the sun, we too often fold up and find that our faith was really no faith at all. But friends, tonight, let me tell you that Christ offers real and true discipleship. Real discipleship in which he says, leave all, forsake all, and follow me. Follow hard after me. Forget the things of the world. Repent of your own thinking, of your old lifestyle, and exercise faith in me. Some of you for the first time, and some of us again and again. No, not salvation again and again, but again and again in a coming. If you're like me, I've been saved for a little while, and I read this text, and I'm like, wow, I need to reorient my life. I need to reorient my thinking around the gospel and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe that Christ's words, fresh as the day they were written here by Luke, fall fresh on our ears tonight. And they simultaneously both encourage those of you who are truly following after Christ to fresh and new devotion, and at the same time convict those hearts who have not truly turned in repentance and faith towards him. Verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt, you probably know in the 
New Testament times was used for many purposes, as a seasoning, as a preservative, as a fertilizer. In each case, the sodium chloride in it, it wasn't stable and it would leach out. You know what happens if the salt loses its saltiness. <laughs> it's of no good. What happens when we as Christians, those of us who are following Christ, when we lose our distinctive holiness, our separateness from the world, our saltiness? We're no longer good for use for the mass. We no longer look distinct and act distinct and look different than the rest of the world. No, we blend right in. And I'm saying this as one who looked no different than the rest of the world as a freshman in college. The salt loses its saltiness. Jesus says it's to be thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As I was studying and thinking about this text, and as I was working on my own heart this week, I stumbled across a story that was particularly convicting for me. It's kind of a silly story, and it's okay to laugh, but I think you'll find the point helpful. It says this, Now it came that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes, Filled with fish. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined and declared and defended fishing as an occupation. They said uh, they declared fishing is always to be the primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and to go for new and better definitions of fishing. Further, they said, the fishing industry exists by fishing as fire exists by burning. They love slogans such as, fishing is the task of every fisherman. Every fisherman's a fisher and a fisherman's outpost to every fisherman's club. They sponsored special meetings and called fishermen campaigns and month for fishermen to fish. They sponsored costly nationwide and worldwide congresses to discuss fishing, to promote fishing, and to hear about all the ways of fishing, such as the new equipment, fish calls, and whether new bait had been discovered. These fishermen built large and beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. All the fishermen seemed to agree that what is needed is a board which could challenge fishermen to be faithful in fishing. The board was formed by those who had great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, and to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. Also, the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, defend fishing, decide whether new streams should be thought about. The staff committee members did not fish. Some spent much study and travel to learn the history of fishing, to see faraway places where the founding fathers did fishing in centuries past. They lauded the faithful fishermen of years before who had handed down the idea of fishing. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. Presses were kept busy day and night to produce materials solely devoted to fishing methods and equipment and programs to arrange and to encourage meetings to talk about fishing. A speaker's bureau was also provided to schedule speaking on, uh, to schedule special speakers on the subject of fishing. Others felt simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors and how loving and kind they were was enough. 
Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of the fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little use and attended the weekly meeting to talk about fishing. After all, it says, were they not following the master who said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Imagine how hurt (laughs) some of them were when one day a person suggested that those who didn't catch fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it did sound correct that a person... Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish? Is one following if he isn't fishing? (laughs) It made me think, have I lost my saltiness? As a disciple of Christ, have we lost our saltiness? I don't know. I can't answer that question for you. But I look out here tonight and I know no doubt there are those here in here tonight who are not yet disciples and Jesus bids you come and die. And yet there are many in this room here tonight. I speak, I believe, to a majority of you who I know. Let us not lose our saltiness. No, let us become diligent disciples increasingly of Jesus Christ and follow hard after Him. Let us this semester, time and time again, gather here and during the week and on Sunday mornings, not merely to talk about fishing, but to fish. That's what we'll do this semester. We'll talk about the master fisherman. We're going to talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who, for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel, says, come and die and follow me. Uh, Satan and the world, they put on display all over, on the internet, on billboards, in books, the temporary pleasures of following them and hide the tragic and eternal punishment of following them. Jesus here puts on full display the cost and the implications of following him. And yet he says, the journey, difficult, yes, difficult as it is, will be persecuting as it is, will be sweet in the fellowship of others. The psalmist writes, in his presence is fullness of joy. So as I've wrestled with this text this week, I want to present the difficulty, the strain, the difficult sayings of Jesus. And yet I don't want to leave you without the beauty and the joy of following hard after Christ with other disciples this year as we gather here. How will we glorify God by being and making disciples? Well, it first starts with becoming a disciple. Tonight, a learner of Christ. And next week, we look again to the person of Jesus Christ. Until then, let us say, where else can we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. Another has said it so much better than I. Plainly put, a relationship with Jesus requires total, superior, and exclusive devotion. He who has ears here tonight, let him hear. Let him hear. Let's pray.
God, your word, weak as it is in uh, the mouth of me, is strong in the text. It's strong in its implications. It's true. It's good. It nourishes the soul. And it rebukes us in many ways. It rebukes me as I look at wanting to follow you even more diligently. I want my affections to be bent all the more to you. And I want, Lord, we pray, we desire so badly for others here tonight who have a quasi-faith, who have prayed a prayer and have only outward signs but no true and real faith, who are professors but not possessors of faith to be turned to you. And so, Lord, not because of me, not because of the band, not because of cross life, but because of your name, get glory through the rescuing of sinners and through the sanctification of your saints. Lord, reprove us where we're off, encourage us where we're seeing growth, and point us in the direction of, our son, of your Son. Lord, yes, fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated down at the right hand of you, even tonight, even now, making intercession for us. Lord, as we sing these true and heavy and weighty songs, may we think of, may we lift up our voices. Oh God, in true worship, in true devotion, in total and unconditional surrender to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.